there's so much individuality when it comes to what things spike different people. And I think there's even individuality when it comes to what spikes you today versus tomorrow. Again, depending on how you exercise, what your sleep is like, what your stress is like, stress plays a huge role. But there are some basic things that I think will help everybody. And you don't need a continuous glucose monitor to know that they will improve your metabolic health. So when it comes to diet, the, the, the overall goal is, of course, to have as nourishing and high nutrient density diet as possible. So that is, to me, the number one thing, even before we get to blood sugar. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. I'm Stephanie May Potter, and I'm here with my co-host, Marnie Dotches marmette We created the Art of Living Well podcast to empower you to live your happiest, healthiest, and most authentic life. Each week, we will bring you inspiring and motivating conversations covering health and wellness topics, including fitness, mindset, food, travel, product reviews, and strategies from a variety of experts, including our own bank of knowledge. We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired. Hello and welcome to episode 147 of the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so excited to share with you this amazing guest, Dr. Lauren Kelly Chu, who's the head of clinical products at Levels Health. And today we're going to be talking all things glucose, monitoring your glucose, metabolic health, and so much more. This is a topic Marnie and I have been diving into personally over the last two years. We both have worn continuous glucose monitors, which we'll dive into more today, and just focus on the tips and strategies of how you can manage your blood sugar, which optimizes your overall health and longevity without even wearing a continuous glucose monitor. And Dr. Lauren is just a wealth of information. She's going to take this somewhat complex topic and really dissect it to make it super easy to understand and then share with you all the strategies and hacks, if you will, that you can literally continue to eat some of the same foods that you're eating, but just by switching the order and the timing of how you eat and what you do after a meal, you can stabilize your blood sugar. So for anyone out there who has experienced a sugar crash and cravings and just the roller coaster of the ups and downs with your mood and your energy and, you know, brain fog, this episode is for you. And And for parents out there listening, this is so important, regardless of how old your kid is or how athletic they are or what good shape they're in, it's really important that we focus on feeding them nourishing foods, reducing the sugar, and reducing the processed foods because we want to set them up for success. And we want them to not have those cravings later in life. I know myself where I'm always trying to help my kids not make the mistakes that I made growing up and we're equipped with so much more knowledge now. So without further ado, let's jump right into this enlightening conversation with Dr. Lauren Kelly Chu from Levels Health. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Shield Your Body. Shield Your Body is a company that makes products to shield your body against electromagnetic frequency or EMF radiation from modern technology. Did you know that all modern technology is a source of EMF radiation? Cell phones, laptops, Wi-Fi, even your refrigerator is a source of EMF radiation. And each year, we are exposed to more and more EMFs. There are literally thousands of high-quality, peer-reviewed scientific studies demonstrating clear links between exposure to EMF radiation and a wide range of negative health effects, from anxiety and infertility to sleep disruption and cancer. Fortunately, there are easy ways that you can reduce your EMF exposure right now that cost you absolutely nothing. After reading the Shield Your Body Guide, I stopped using my AirPods, something I used daily for hours sometimes, and have switched back to the old school wired headphones. And for me, after reading the Shield Your Body Guide, I really put my foot down and insisted that my kids keep their cell phones and their laptops out of their bedrooms at night while they were sleeping. And I've been working on Jordan as well. And I think after reading the guide and listening to our podcast, he has finally agreed to do that. So download your copy of a free guide at shieldyourbody.com to start improving your health right now. 
And be sure to check out our episode number 123 with our blank CEO of Shield Your Body. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. Marnie and I, this is just a topic that we've been biohacking ourselves for quite a while, just blood sugar, and we've used level CGM quite a bit, um, diving into our own um, blood sugar levels over the past year, and I've learned a lot. And we've also been getting a lot of questions from friends and people that see us wearing the patch. And so we just can't wait to share your immense knowledge with our listeners today and help others improve their metabolic health. And we just want to thank Michael from HVMN who introduced us to Levels. Um, so shout out to him. He was one of our previous guests a few months ago. Um, so Lauren, everyone has a story and we would love to hear your journey from medical school to ultimately becoming the head of clinical product at Levels. So in essence, I guess, how did you get here? Yeah, it's interesting. It hasn't been a super linear path. So I actually started my career in finance, doing um, private equity and investing in healthcare companies. And I, I learned an immense amount about that, which actually has ended up looping back to many of the skills that I use now at Levels. Um, but at some point in there, I decided that I really wanted to learn kind of the, the deep knowledge about medicine and almost even more importantly, how medicine is practiced in the US. Um, because I felt that in order to eventually help to change the system, I had to see for, for myself what it was like. So I went to medical school and it was actually in medical school that I found out that I had prediabetes, which was very surprising because one, I thought that I was very healthy. I ran a lot. I've always been pretty lean. Um, but also here I was studying how to take care of other people. And I had this situation going on in my own body that I wasn't even aware of. Um, and ultimately, that's the thread that led me to Levels. Um, but after medical school, I co-founded a startup in the digital health space and then actually went to Google's life sciences arm and worked on all kinds of biosensors and um, kind of biomedical and emerging products there. And so really where I am now is the confluence of all of these things. It's my personal and family story around issues with high blood sugar um, but also on the professional side, just being seeing healthcare from so many different angles, and then ultimately finding a place where I could combine this desire to improve people's metabolic health and really just raise awareness around blood sugar, and really to help myself and my family and all the people that I love, um, but also to get to use all these skills that I built up over the years in terms of the business side, the clinical side, and the tech side. Wow, I love that. And I think it's so your path is so interesting. Like I have I want to hook you up with my daughter and have her, she wants to go to med school. I think you'd be a really interesting person for her to talk to. But um so before we dive in, I'm really curious to hear how you discovered you had prediabetes. This is really, it was really interesting. What happened was um, a lot of my family has prediabetes or diabetes, um, as well as a lot of very early heart attacks, unfortunately. So I was actually doing some extra screening because of that family history. Um, and then I found that I met the diagnostic criteria for prediabetes. And, and like I said, this was really surprising to me um, because it had actually been brought up before with previous physicians, um, like my, my physicians, where I'd said, you know, I have this family history and they were like, no one that looks like you could possibly have prediabetes, right? Like this is not something that impacts young people so much. This is not people that something that impacts people who have a low BMI, who are running all the time, who are eating good food. What I thought was good food. I've come to learn. I was doing a lot of things that <laughs> increase my blood sugar, but you know, essentially eating what I believed was healthy. Um, and so I had actually had multiple checkpoints along the way where this had been raised and it was like, there's no way this is possible. And then I did um, this test called an oral glucose tolerance test, which is really specific for um, looking at kind of markers of metabolic dysfunction in terms of how your body deals with drinking a really sugary drink. And I think many women or almost all women in the U.S. who have been pregnant have done this. So um, people are aware of what that experience is like. But um, that was the first sign that something was off for me. And that basically triggered years of prior to ever wearing a continuous glucose monitor, years of trying to change my diet and understand um, how to modulate this within my own lifestyle. It's so wow. interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think we should just dive right into this. And I, before we talk about CGMs and levels specifically, specifically, we'd really love to lay the foundation of what 
you know, we're all referring to as metabolic health and, you know, what individuals can do today to improve their metabolic health. And we'd love for you to talk about, you know, what metabolic dysfunction is and why it is one of the largest health crises facing the world today. Absolutely. And I think one of the things when it comes to blood sugar, just before really jumping into to metabolic health is people often associate it with prediabetes and diabetes. But part of our mission at Levels and my personal mission is to raise awareness that actually metabolic dysfunction um, is likely happening in about nine out of 10 Americans right now. So this is not something that's just for people with the diagnosis. This is impacting almost all of us to some extent. So what is metabolic health? I think the place to start is what is metabolism? And really that's just the complex biochemical processes that our bodies use to turn the food we eat into energy for our cells. We have about 37 trillion cells and all of those cells need to be able to do this process in a effective way. So as you can imagine, this is a really intricate and elegant balancing act for the body. And when that is all going optimally, we say you have good metabolic health. Unfortunately, many of the lifestyle um, factors that we have now, for example, eating really highly processed foods or very high carb or high sugar foods, oftentimes not even knowing it, really disrupts this elegant process. And that leads to metabolic dysfunction. And that is really the beginning of the pathway towards prediabetes and diabetes. But again, along the way, people will be experiencing, including what I was experiencing, many things that we've just accepted as normal right? Like many of us accept a little bit of brain fog or an afternoon crash or kind of disrupted sleep that doesn't feel quite right. All of these things we just accept as part of being alive. Um, but I think the reality is that our actual normal is probably in the absence of almost all of those things. I love that you said that. We actually were just interviewing someone that kind of similar, like people walk around thinking this is normal, whether it's the brain fog or headaches or sleep issues. So can I ask, what were your symptoms before you were diagnosed pre-diabetic? And, and I, you know, it was interesting that you said, oh, your doctor looked at you from a physical standpoint and said, there is no way someone who looks like you and runs or, you know, is active could be pre-diabetic. And I think that's something that we want to dive into as well, because I think a lot of, that, that's a belief that a lot of Americans at least have. Mm -hmm. If you had asked me at the time, do I have any symptoms? I would have said no. I am perfectly healthy. I'm tired because I'm in medical school, but I'm really healthy. Looking back, there were all these things happening that I didn't identify at the time. For example, really intense afternoon crashes. I mean, I, I remember, for example, finishing seeing the morning patients, having lunch with the med students and the faculty and everybody, and then just feeling like I could lay down on the floor and go to sleep. Um, and not because I wanted a rest. It was like, because I needed a rest. I mean, it, it was almost painful to try to stay awake. Um, and that just didn't make sense to me. But of course I attributed it to the fact that I was getting no sleep, which I'm sure did not help. Um, but, but now I, I realized that that, that really wasn't, that really wasn't me. That was probably really high and low blood sugar happening. Um, I think other things, sleep, my sleep was not great. Um, again, I found explanations for that, but looking back, I think that was, that was probably pretty clearly a blood sugar issue. Um, the thing that I really notice now that my blood sugar is stable almost all the time is when my blood sugar starts to spike, I feel this sensation that I used to think was kind of like a, a high. I, it's hard to explain. It's almost like you start to feel this buzzing, like, and, and it feels kind of good, but also a little bit strange and like there's an edge. I used to think that that was... I don't know, my energy starting to rev up or maybe <laughs> it was time for me to go for a run. Now I know that feeling is my blood pressure spiking. Whenever my blood pressure spikes, mm -hmm. now I feel it immediately. And I can predict before ever looking at my continuous glucose monitor that I'm having a spike. Um, and That's like, amazing. amazing. Wow. So you, I mean, I'm so amazed that you are that tuned into your body. How long did it take you to get to that point? A while, actually, um, because yeah. I think this this is something that I think is really important to me when we talk about tech and all of these different tools we have for this is ultimately the goal in my mind is that people use these tools to really learn how to, to feel their own bodies so that eventually you're not dependent on a tool. You have mm -hmm. that sensation in your own body. Um, I think for me, 
it was such a different experience to have stable blood sugar. And it took me quite a while to figure out how to get that. And I ended up having to, for example, explore keto and a variety of other things. Um, but as soon as I had a period of, for example, a full month of essentially really stable blood sugar, when I had my first spike and it was accidental because I ate something that was marketed as keto that actually um, created a blood sugar spike, I felt it immediately in my body and I thought, what is going on? And I checked my blood sugar and it was rising. And that was the first moment when I said, oh, that feeling, that feeling is a blood sugar spike because I hadn't had it for so long. So it was really noticeable. Wow. wow. <laughs> you know, so you mentioned a startling statistic of nine out of 10, you know, Americans being pre-diabetic or having some form of metabolic dysfunction, but yet a lot of people don't even know it, including yourself a number of years ago. Um, and a lot of these can be, you know, young children, correct? You know, like much younger than adults. So, you know, just curious, like based on what you, what you're seeing at levels, cause you guys are collecting a lot of data, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, what do you believe are some of the major causes? And we can talk a little bit about more food and lifestyle and maybe diving into some of that. Of those things. So I think if we start with diet, the way that we eat now um, here and also in many places around the world is really processed, very high carb and very high sugar. So about 60% of American calories come from highly processed food. So that gives you an idea of as a collective, how we are fueling our bodies. Um, and then you add on top of that, all kinds of sources of sugar and carbs, and oftentimes sugar and carbs stripped of protein. So if we go back to processed foods, many processed foods, they actually purposely strip protein out of them um, for two reasons. One is it's much, much less satiating. So they know that it will create much more of an addictive response where people want to eat more and more and they'll never, never feel full. And the other side is they um, can actually sell that separated protein to, to other um, food manufacturers for other foods. So this is just one example of the types of processes that are happening that eventually becomes the food that we put in our mouth. Um, and many of these things are subsidized. There's, there's so much complexity there. But ultimately what happens is our cells are just bombarded with all kinds of essentially sugar, different forms of sugar and other toxins that we weren't really designed to manage. And so they just get overloaded. Um, and I think the body is so beautiful and resilient and it really tries to keep up with this. And we can talk about insulin, but we have all these mechanisms for trying to pull our blood sugar back down. And we will, our bodies will keep doing that as much as we can, but eventually even the most resilient body tires out. And it's really that tiring out when you start to then see the blood sugar numbers um, getting really off and becoming a, a more formal diagnosis. But, but the reality is that those diet induced impacts are happening long, long before you see it reflected in the labs that are typically um, given today in, in physician offices. And then the other piece of it, which you mentioned, well, there's several pieces, but the other core component is movement. We're not moving our bodies nearly enough, which I think everyone knows at this point, but it really, when it comes to blood sugar, muscles suck up blood sugar, muscles use blood sugar. So when you're not using your muscles, you've got all this blood sugar in your blood and it doesn't really have anywhere to go. It's just sitting there. Um, and so eventually, of course, it does go in a little bit into the muscle, but less if you're not using the muscles, it goes to the liver and it's converted to fat. And this is the process that our body does to get all that toxic blood sugar out. Um, but the lack of exercise makes this much harder on the body than it would otherwise be. Um, and then as you mentioned, there's all kinds of interesting things around stress, around sleep, um, around all kinds of other aspects of the ecosystem really within which we live our lives. Well, it's like there isn't just one component of health. And this is just a prime example when we're talking about something, a very serious medical condition, that it's not just the food, but it's the movement and the stress and the sleep. Um, so you, you mentioned something though, just real quick, um, Lauren, about getting a test at your doctor's office. So what, you know, what could people do if someone's curious right now about their blood sugar level? Can they go to their doctor and get like a fasting glucose test? And how would that help them? This is a really important topic because I think this is something that really needs to change in terms of how medical care is practiced right now. The two most typical tests that primary care physicians will give is fasting glucose and hemoglobin A1C. And probably many people in your audience have had one or both of those done because they're pretty standard. The thing about those though, is that they're lagging indicators of a problem. So I think the easiest way to think about it is we just go through an example of what this would look like. 
So let's say that you go to your doctor, you get a fasting glucose, it's normal. Your doctor and a fasting glucose is, what is your blood sugar after a night of not eating? So basically, what is it at baseline? And let's say it's normal. Um, and your doctor looks at it and says, you definitely don't have a problem. If that's normal, it's fine. Well, the reality is that, like I was saying before, your body has so many ways to compensate for the barrage of sugar that you're giving it, that it can actually produce a normal fasting glucose. But the question is, how much effort did it have to do to get you there? So this goes back to insulin. And insulin is just the hormone that signals the body to move sugar out of the blood and into muscles, liver, and fat. So let's say that you had a super sugary meal the night before your fasting glucose, and your body responded to that by producing a ton of insulin. So it actually did, it was successfully able to pull that blood sugar down. And by the time you got that test in the morning, you had a normal fasting glucose. But that high level of insulin, that's not cost-free. Over time, having high insulin like that over and over and over leads to metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance. And so you can actually go a very long time having what appear to be normal fasting glucose numbers, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes that suggests that actually there's quite a bit of dysfunction happening. The, the other thing about fasting glucose and really labs in general is that um, we have these arbitrary cutoffs. And I think everyone is familiar with this because when you open up your medical chart through the online portal to look at a lab test, it's like everything is fine unless there's a flag. And really that flag is just saying it was outside of the normal range. But the reality is that, let's say that, so for example, for fasting glucose, the cutoff for prediabetes is 99 um, or 100, depending on how the system does it, but let's call it 99. Essentially, if you are 98, you will be told it is fine. No problem. Mm -hmm. But if you are a 101, it's a problem. Now you have prediabetes. That just doesn't make sense, right? Like right. this is, health is a spectrum. <laughs> And so they're really, and, and the reason I mention that is because one thing that people can do who are using fasting glucose to try to understand their health is if you do see a trend line of it rising, even though it's still in the normal range, that's a good indicator that things are not moving in a good direction. And your doctor will never say that's a problem, or most doctors will not say that's a problem, but it is clearly a problem you're moving along a spectrum. Um, and again, this should be a trend over time. It's not just one aberrational reading. Well, then that's the other thing that my personal issue with that test is that's one snapshot in time, mm. right? That's not, so that kind of goes to continuous glucose monitors. And I remember hearing about them a number of years ago. I can't remember where I read it first, where people were starting to use it, not just because you have diabetes, but for their own informational purposes to manage their health. And I was thinking to myself, that is so crazy. You're going to stick a needle in your arm and who's going to do that? I just, I remember my initial reaction to it. This was a long time ago. And, you know, here I am talking with you and <laughs> I've done it many times now. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what, what that is, a continuous glucose monitor, because I don't know if our listeners even understand what that is and how it can give you different information than that one test, which is a snapshot, you know, on one given day. Yeah. So uh, a continuous glucose monitor is a small sensor that you wear on your arm. It has a filament about the size of a, a strand of hair that just sits right below the skin and it measures your blood sugar in real time. And like you said, I mean, I think this can be life altering from the perspective of having a window into your body that is very hard to get any other way simply because of the way that labs are done um, in the country and all, well, really all over the world um, and also just the limitations of, of, of technology. So this is a really amazing tool. Um, and what happens is that when you're wearing this, you eat something or you exercise in a certain way and you can see in real time what the impact on your blood sugar is. So exactly like you said, fasting glucose is a snapshot. Um, you don't know what happened the night before exactly, or maybe you were stressed, you got poor sleep, right? Or even for hemoglobin A1C, which measures your average glucose over the past several months. But even there, you don't know what was actually happening there. You could imagine that it was like a roller coaster up and down and up and down and up and down. But that hemoglobin A1C is essentially giving you the average. So again, you can have this longitudinal look, but unless you know the details of actually what's happening moment to moment, it's very hard to have the full picture. I think that's super important for people to understand and realize and 
how can um, a CGM help someone in a different way? Right. So it's really what you said. It's about the, the continuous nature of it. I think it's, it's, well, for one, it's the data that you get from doing that, right? Like you, you get these moment to moment information that again, is just very hard to get in any other way. Diabetics for years have had to do finger pricking where they're finger pricking to get their blood sugar every couple hours with every meal, like really many times a day. Um, and that prior to continuous glucose monitoring really is the best way to do this. So that's not the most, what's well, not comfortable. And it's also not particularly practical. Um, but the other thing about continuous glucose monitoring is it's a tool for accountability. It's a tool for closing that feedback loop where you're able to actually see the impact of your actions in the moment practically. So I think there's relatively few things in our lives when it comes to health where we get feedback that quickly. You think about something like weight loss, for example, or weight maintenance. Here you are exercising, eating well, sleeping well, doing all these things. It might be weeks or months before you're really able to see a change. And that doesn't mean that there's not benefit. I think there's a lot of evidence there's benefit in the moment immediately. But in terms of your ability to get that feedback loop and that um, consistency in terms of seeing the benefits of what you're doing, continuous glucose monitoring is such a shorter feedback loop. And I think that can be really powerful. I think it's such a great accountability tool. I mean, people use their watches and they monitor steps, but this is like really biohacking, you know, mm -hmm. in its truest form because it's analyzing what's going on inside your body. Um, and I do want to, we're going to get into more of the, you know, some of the hacks and things like that we can talk about with blood sugar, but you, you've talked a little bit about like insulin resistance mm -hmm. and, you know, your body can be in this state of insulin resistance for a while, I think, before you become actual pre-diabetic or diabetic. And I think what some people may not fully understand is like, how can insulin resistance contribute to obesity and then people struggling to lose weight, especially that visceral fat, you know, the belly fat. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that maybe even if you can touch on the fact that you don't have to be, you know, like observably overweight to be considered pre-diabetic, right? Right, right. Because oftentimes weight does connect to people in a state of insulin resistance, but it doesn't necessarily have to. And this is where, of course, in my personal story, it was, I think I went much longer not being diagnosed than I would have otherwise. Insulin is really amazing because it's basically one of the body's protective mechanisms for not ever having blood sugar get to dangerously high levels. And the way that it does that is it converts blood sugar into fat. So when insulin is high, your body is just getting this very strong signal that it's time to create fat. It has to do that to protect itself. So it's actually, like I said, it's, it's very elegant. We should all be thanking our bodies that it's able to create that fat so that we're not... Um, so that we're not as damaged by the high blood sugar that we would otherwise experience. But what this also means is that as long as your blood sugar is high and therefore your insulin is high to try to compensate, your body doesn't have the signal to burn fat. It, it doesn't want to burn fat. It can't burn fat because it is having to create fat. <laughs> this is a, somewhat of an oversimplification, but that's the basic conceptual framework. And this is why many people notice that when they stabilize their blood sugar and that insulin is allowed to drop, then their body can tap into the signal to say, you know what, we can actually use some of the fat we already have and create it into energy for your body to do the things it needs to do. And really the goal of blood sugar stabilization is metabolic flexibility, which is to say that you can convert fat into energy. You can also convert carbs into energy. Um, and of course, it depends what kind of diet you're eating, but you want your body to be as flexible as possible where it's always in a state of balance and you're helping it stay in that state of balance. Is there a way that a person could know when they're in that state of metabolic flexibility? There are, so there's, there's a variety of ways. Um, if you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor, you can see that you have metabolic flexibility because you can eat different kinds of meals and your blood sugar will remain mostly stable. Of course, it's not ever a flat line and the goal isn't necessarily a completely flat line because you could drink oil and get a flat line and that's obviously not <laughs> conducive to a nutritious, a nutritious, <laughs> nutritious diet. Um, but the goal is just to have really gentle rises and gentle falls. Um, if you have metabolic flexibility, you'll be able to maintain that eating a mixture of different types of foods. Of course, even people who are metabolically flexible, if you eat a whole bunch of carbs or sugar, you will get a spike. 
because there's your, your body just can't keep up fast enough, but in general, you'll, you'll see that you're able to do that. The, the other thing I would say is, um, well, of course, if you notice that you're losing fat, that suggests that you're able to burn fat, but, um, but also depending, I mean, there are various tools, for example, for people who are, are doing keto diets and therefore they're, um, actively creating ketones. There are ways to measure that, for example, in the breath or in the blood through finger pricking. And some people get very into that. Um, but, but I think the simplest way to know is, um, is either through continuous glucose monitoring or through your own sensations in your body. When you notice that your sleep is really good, that you have energy consistently throughout the day, that you're not gaining weight, all of these things suggest that you're in a much more of a state of balance than you would be otherwise. How would you like to wake up on January 1st and not feel like you needed a complete reset because you overindulged from Halloween through New Year's? And I know how tempting the cookies are. Trust me, I have been there before. But wouldn't you like to be part of a community of like-minded women who during the holiday season, which can be stressful, but also so much fun, you were able to hold true to your health goals and thrive with a community of like-minded people who are going to hold you accountable. So we have this awesome program kicking off on November 16th. It's going to run 30 days, and I don't just want you to take our word for it. I want you to hear what some of our prior participants have had to say. I would recommend the 30-Day Holiday Thrive Program to anyone who wants to help themselves focus on their wellness goals, be it nutrition, meal planning, exercise, meditation, self-care, in a very supportive environment. I very much felt supported by Marnie and Stephanie. It was helpful to hear that they have the same struggles, and even though they may be farther along on the path to wellness, the work of eating right, sleeping, moving is a daily goal for all of us. Well, we're here to help you on your journey to find your art of living well. Click the link in our show notes, message us, head on over to our website. You know where to find us, DM us on Instagram. We can't wait for you to join our community. So it's super interesting. You mentioned, you know, the goal is to have a gentle rise and a gentle fall. And I've seen different data out there. And I even remember the last time I was wearing the monitor, my husband's a, a doctor and, you know, was trained very traditionally. And he would say, oh, well, that's very normal. You know, when you eat such and such, your blood sugar is supposed to go that high and whatever. But is there like a number range where you would want to see a gentle rise and a gentle fall that you would kind of recommend people try and get themselves into? The guidelines that we follow at Levels, which is based on the research of our medical advisory panel and really just kind of the most cutting edge and up-to-date research on metabolic health studies, we we recommend that people try to stay below 110 um, and um, at meals to try to avoid either going over 110 or having rises of more than 20 to 30 points. This is relatively strict compared to, or very strict compared to traditional um, kind of cutoffs, but this is what we believe is, is most optimal for metabolic health. And again, I think we would be the first to say that research in this area is evolving. And therefore we, we expect that we'll all continue to learn more about this. But I think it's pretty clear at this point, at least from my perspective, that the traditional cutoffs don't make sense. And this is in part because many of these cutoffs have been created over time for, from, for a variety of reasons that aren't necessarily tied to health. For example, it may have to do with um, pharmaceutical interventions that are available or specific populations that were studied um, or focusing just on kind of end stage um, physiologic problems, for example, all the way through diabetes versus much earlier markers of metabolic dysfunction. So I think everything is evolving here, but that's what we, um, that's what we recommend. Well, and Marnie and I know just from a functional medicine standpoint and things that we're trained in that the typical range, even if thyroid or other markers is from a more conventional medical perspective is much wider than, you know, more integrative functional approach. And that sounds like it's consistent, you know, based on some of the doctors, Hyman and others that you have on your, you know, your boards and things that, that makes sense that your range would be narrowed. Um, so let's move in. We've talked a little bit about the CGM and levels. Um, you know, what are some of the different hacks that you, one can 
one can do or just be aware of when it comes to blood sugar. Because that's one of the things I think that Marnie and I noticed in particular, you know, some food that she ate, we would talk about it when we were wearing at the same time. And my blood sugar would spike eating relatively healthy food. So I'm talking black beans, sweet potatoes, even cabbage, lentils. Um, so anyway, I just think this is fascinating. It kind of gets to some of like the nitty gritty um, details of why it would be, you know, why we have enjoyed wearing the CGM. There's so much individuality when it comes to what things spike different people. And I think there's even individuality when it comes to what spikes you today versus tomorrow. Again, depending on how you exercise, what your sleep is like, what your stress is like, stress plays a huge role. But there are some basic things that I think will help everybody. And you don't need a continuous glucose monitor to know that they will improve your metabolic health. So when it comes to diet, the, the, the overall goal is, of course, to have as nourishing and high nutrient density diet as possible. So that is, to me, the number one thing, even before we get to blood sugar. But within that, the goal from a blood sugar perspective is essentially twofold. The first is to try to minimize or moderate the levels of carbs and sugar that you're eating. And that's mostly around food selection. So, of course, all of the highly processed foods, all the foods with added sugar, um, all of the foods that we know are high carb, like pasta, rice, bread, are going to be very difficult for your body to metabolize without spiking your blood sugar. But then there's other things that I think we don't think of as often. For example, grapes are one of the largest blood sugar spikers for eating grapes. Grapes do have some great nutrition, but it's about being conscious that those are full of sugar. So if you're going to eat them, you need to do it in a very um, intentional way and to really minimize portion size. The other big factor is how quickly sugar is absorbed. So once you have eaten carbs or sugar, what is happening in your body and how quickly is that rise in blood sugar likely to occur? And there's many things that influence this. So the first thing is whether you are pairing the carbs that you're eating with protein and fat. If you eat carbs alone, so like the classic example is you go to a restaurant, the bread basket's there, you're on an empty stomach, you eat the bread. Having bread alone is one of the hardest things for your body to deal with. It will almost certainly spike your blood sugar. But if you pair that bread with fat and protein, so let's say instead of eating plain bread, you have bread with avocado on it and an egg. Now that bread is within a mixture of foods going into your stomach and the blood sugar spike will be much less. So pairing foods is something that is really helpful. Likewise, the order in which you eat foods. So instead of starting with the bread, if the bread goes last, and really what you want to do is start with things that are high in fiber that have good doses of protein and fat. So for example, a salad with avocado on it um, and maybe some nuts that's high in protein, fat, and fiber. Because fiber, of course, as we all know, the, the roughage <laughs> that they refer to, it slows down sugar absorption. So if you eat all those things first and then you eat the bread at the end, the impact of that bread will be much less. Um, and the final piece of sugar absorption from this perspective is moving your body after you eat. This doesn't mean that you need to eat and then go on an intense run. I, I don't think that anyone would recommend that. But really gentle movement or even moderate movement after eating decreases the blood sugar spice so, spike so dramatically. So the classic example is you eat a meal and then you go for a walk. We know that this lowers blood sugar, but if you can't go for an hour long walk, a five minute walk is, is good. A 10 minute walk is good. If you can't get out of the house, do some squats in the living room. If you can't do that, just stand up. I think at this point, even just standing versus sitting will make an improvement in people's metabolic health. Um, and I've actually seen this even on my own continuous glucose monitor, where if I see my sugar starting to spike, I will get up, I'll do some calf raises, just standing at my desk or, or do some squats and I will blunt that, that rise. Um, so it's pretty amazing the impact of those things. It's yeah, really amazing. I, I've, I personally noticed and started the habit of trying to walk after lunch and dinner, even if it's a 10 minute walk mm -hmm. um, or a 30 minute walk or whatever I can squeeze in. It really does make a difference. Like I could, I loved that I could actually see it on the monitor happening. And you honestly feel better. And if you think yeah. about if you've traveled to Europe, this is just part of their part of their culture, right? You always see people like getting up after dinner and walking around, or if you go out to eat and you walk somewhere, then you walk, just walking home. That's, I mean, neither one of us, Marty and I live in a like urban environment right now, but I have before. And I loved walking to and from dinner because 
you're just naturally moving your body. Um, it's like what our bodies were designed and how we were evolved, right? We went and like, you know, ate our prey and then we moved on to, to the next thing. Um, but there's just so many cool, like you just mentioned all these free hacks. And I've noticed personally, like I don't eat a lot of bread or gluten, but if I'm at a really good restaurant and there's like really fresh, good sourdough bread. So now what I do, my kids think, oh, well, mom's not going to eat it. So I get two pieces of bread. So I take my bread and I put it on my plate and then I eat it. Like after I've eaten mm-hmm. a salad and maybe some of my protein or whatever I'm going to eat and I will enjoy it. And I've, nope, doesn't spike my blood sugar. So mm-hmm. there's just simple yeah. hacks that you're still enjoying the foods you want to enjoy. You know, hopefully they are nutrient rich, but you're able to biohack your blood sugar and avoid those spikes. And then the, the bursts of insulin. Lauren, what do you think about apple cider vinegar? I've heard mixed things mm-hmm. about that. And I, um, had even gone as far as buying the little capsules that they sell and trying to like pop them before a meal. But I don't know that I really saw any results from that. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I would say in the metabolic health community, the consensus that there seems to be is that it does help, but this is mostly anecdotal. Um, I'm not exactly sure that all of the kind of formal scientific research that it was, has been done on apple cider vinegar. I do know that a lot of people swear by it. I personally sometimes do it because I enjoy the flavor of apple cider vinegar as a little, like a little spritz in, I don't know, in some water or, or in, in a salad dressing. Um, I haven't necessarily noticed a huge difference, but I also eat relatively or very low carb. So I typically don't have that much to process in my food. So I'm not sure that I I would see a difference. Um, So unfortunately, I don't know that I can give a specific answer to that, except that I think it's like everything, which is it's about experimentation and what works for your body versus someone else's body. I know that others have talked about, for example, squeezing a fresh uh, lemon into water and drinking that before eating and that the acidity of that, that there's something about that, that also reduces the impact of the blood sugar load. Um, but again, I think these are all things that are tools for people to try, but the, the most powerful lever of course, is what you're eating in that meal and how you're moving your body. I was just going to say, and then what about alcohol? That was another thing I was thinking about. Alcohol in general does tend to, uh, pull blood sugar down. But again, this to me kind of falls in the category of oil. So using alcohol to offset a blood sugar spike is not part of a healthy, <laughs> healthy plan. <laughs> and I think, I think there's more and more evidence about the potentially harmful effects of alcohol. And actually, there was a great um, podcast in the Huberman podcast recently all about alcohol um, and talking about all of the impacts on the body. So it, it does re- tend to reduce blood sugar in people for a variety of reasons, um, but definitely in my mind, not something that should be used for that purpose. And actually, if you drink too much alcohol, you can get quite a bit of blood sugar dysregulation because of the um, impact on the liver and, and the body generally. That's so, that's so interesting. And I had noticed I, I could drink like a very clean, low sugar wine and even have some like really dark chocolate and my blood sugar would be stable. And then I'd eat, you know, sweet potatoes and black beans. And they was like through the roof. So, and I, I do, I do really, I did really enjoy wearing the continuous glucose monitor because it gives you that personalized data. And then afterwards, then, you know, the hacks and you don't need it necessarily all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think because everyone's so unique and bioindividuality, you know, plays a big role here that it's nice to have that information. It is, it is. And I would just say though, also, because continuous glucose monitors might not be accessible to everybody. I think for almost everybody, there are things you can do that will improve your metabolic health that you don't even need the continuous glucose monitor for. And, and some of these things like I, you're, you're definitely a lot of people spike with, for example, sweet potatoes, which of course do have a lot of nutrition. Um, but I think for things like that, it's mostly just awareness, even for people who've never worn a continuous glucose monitor that they are, there is great nutrition in these kinds of foods but they are very high carb. And so if you are going to include them in your diet, you just have to be really intentional and conscious, right? Like treating them like you would bread. So not eating them first, not eating them without protein and fat, trying to move after you eat them, like keeping the serving size minimal because serving size, I think is something that we so rarely think about in diets. Well, in diets with restriction diets, of course, there's a lot of focus on serving size, but in terms of blood sugar, 
rather than having a list of can eat, cannot eat, it's really about being cognizant of the overall blood sugar or carb load. And so, for example, eating one grape is really different than sitting down with a bowl of grapes. And likewise, for all of these things, even, even foods that are not particularly high in carbs, if eaten in excess, will spike your blood sugar just because the overall load is, is high. That's yeah. such great advice. And I love that you just said, you don't, you don't need the CGM. Absolutely not. Because also you can pay attention to how you're feeling and be really in tune with, like you mentioned, like, do you have a big crash in the afternoon? And some of the symptoms that you said in hindsight you had, but at the time we've normalized them as a society. So that's just great advice. So I'm curious, Lauren, like what does your typical diet look like having your blood sugar pretty stable? This has been an evolution for me. So when I first put on the, the continuous glucose monitor, it was pretty shocking to me how these foods that I was very certain were healthy for me were spiking my blood sugar. And the prime example was the bowl of oatmeal that I would have in the morning. And this was actually steel cut oats. So I, in my head, I was like, it doesn't get healthier than this. I would put blueberries in it, which I believe was great for antioxidants. Um, I would add it. I actually added a whole bunch of things to this. And this was something that I had for breakfast for years and years. And I really loved it. When I first put on the continuous glucose monitor, that spiked me out. And actually a lot of the things that I was eating, like sweet potatoes, were creating big spikes. And so I started by trying to kind of modify those things. So for example, I cut the serving size of steel cut oats in half, and then I added some other things. But in the end, that moderated approach at that time didn't work for me. I was still spiking um, regardless of those efforts. So I actually tried keto for about uh, eight months. And that was a relatively strict keto, especially at the beginning. And I, people are probably familiar with this, but keto is essentially extremely low carb. You're, you're mostly eating fat and some protein. And of course, this will create stable glucose. But the challenge for me with that type of keto was having the enough of a range of nutrition and also really having enough carbs for my body to be in balance. I think something that isn't talked about enough is that most metabolic health research and most medical research in general was done on men. And so many of these things that are interventions, they work beautifully with men, but they don't necessarily fit the female body because we're not just small men. We have very different physiology and keto. Actually, it's becoming more recognized for about half of women. Keto actually does not move them in the, in the direction of health. For example, it creates weight gain or it creates issues with energy. So for me, keto really helped me to get my body in a state of stable blood sugar, which I think was very healing in some ways, but long-term I felt like it just wasn't it wasn't my final destination, let's put it that way. So I essentially from there started carefully adding back some types of carbs, like especially a bunch of wider variety of vegetables, a little bit of berries, kind of experimenting with how to get it as nutritious as possible. So now I essentially follow, I think the easiest way of describing it would be low carb Mediterranean diet. So it's focused on lots of leafy greens, lots of plants, lots of fiber, um, lean proteins, fish. I don't really eat much meat outside of fish, but when I, it, it's not a strict thing. It's just more, I, I don't really enjoy it that much, but I do occasionally eat a little bit of meat. Um, and that's really worked for me. So that's what I've, I've stayed with. And, and I think one thing that is interesting for people who are experimenting, especially if you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor is that what your body can handle when you're coming out of metabolic dysfunction versus what it can handle when you have established really good metabolic health is very different. So things that spiked me a lot at the beginning before going keto, now I eat them with no problem. And so it's really an evolution. And as your body gets more and more in balance, you're able to tolerate different things than you were previously. The other thing is I've added strength training. I've, I've changed some things in terms of my body as well to try to help with this, but it, it really has been amazing to watch the evolution. You know, you brought up something that just triggered a question in my head. Do you think that if you have a food sensitivity, that can be um, evident in a spike in your blood sugar? So is there any correlation so, such that when you remove the food, like you did, and you removed all these foods, and now you're able to enjoy them without the spike? That is a really good question that I don't know the answer to. One thing that I do think is interesting, though, is that the body's stress response and kind of inflammatory response when it's in a state of insulin resistance or in with continuously high blood sugar does also then further the cycle. So when you think of, for example, fight or flight, 
if you think you're going to have to run or fight, it'll spike your blood sugar up so that you can do that. So to the extent that a food allergen is triggering that inflammatory response, I suspect it probably would have an impact on blood sugar simply because you're now in this state where the body thinks it needs to be on alert and potentially ready to, to mobilize in some way. So I, I do think there's probably a lot to be said about bringing the body out of that inflammatory state, out of a state where the immune system is revving into a state of kind of calm and balance. I would expect that that would improve things, but again, just, just brainstorming here. I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure the answer. No, that's great insight. Thank you. So one other thing we wanted to kind of touch on is, and this gets to your story and your journey, mm-hmm. is sugar, just in general, like pure sugar, the, the stuff that we know is going to spike your blood sugar. But I just see a lot of parents out there with ki- you know kids that are they're drinking the sugary drinks, and then they're having the snacks, and they're eating a very high-carb diet. But because their kids are thin or they're athletic, they kind of dismiss it. Like they, they may recognize that, oh yeah, my kid's having a lot of sugar, but they don't consider it to be anything to really be concerned about at this point in time because their kids may be eight or younger or 10 or 12 or even a teenager. But I, guess I would love your insight like that you could share with those parents out there. Like why is it important at this age, regardless of what age your kid is, to be mindful of their sugar intake and like any strategies or tips that you would suggest to help educate, you know, just, just be aware. It's not like we're asked, I'm suggesting that anyone go on some sort of a diet or anything like that, but just how can they kind of slowly start to change some of these behaviors to have this long-term like implication, like think about your kid in 10 to 20 years. Right. And I would add on to that not only do they think it's not a big deal, but I know parents whose kids are athletes and whatever, they think their kids need it. Mm. Like they actually think my kid needs the calories. My kids need the Gatorade filled crap because they're working out six hours a day or whatever, and their body needs it. And I'm thinking you're setting them up with all these habits that are going to be a problem later in life. I, I agree. And I think there's there's two main things here. So one is for children in general, the foods that they're eating definitely impact their, their physical well-being. And I think we know this intuitively, but you can actually see it in the rates of, for example, obesity in, in children and even the liver developing fatty storage areas. So fatty, non-alcoholic fatty liver, we now see in children. This is not something that was seen in the past. So we can see collectively just from looking at the research that the way that children are eating now is negatively impacting their health. Um, And even if they are thin, that first of all, that doesn't mean that they're not developing fat storage in other areas, for example, around their organs or in the liver. But also I think increasingly people are realizing that many of the behaviors that are considered kind of bad behavior for children, for example, acting out or being super rambunctious or being kind of um, fussy, these things, these are probably blood sugar spiking and crashing. And we don't even realize that that's what's happening in our kids. It's just, again, another thing that we've considered normal, right? Like, oh, he's hyper or he, whatever, or she. And maybe there's an element of something there in the personality because of course children are beautiful and interesting young humans, but also they're constantly being flooded with sugar. And unfortunately this tends to happen from the very moment they wake up because Breakfast tends to be one of the most sugary and carby meals that all of us eat. You think about waffles, pancakes, the the Pop-Tarts, right? All of this stuff is just really blood sugar spiking. So there's the piece of how it's impacting them in the moment. But then you're also setting up their kind of behaviors and the ways that they think about food and diet for their whole lives. And you're, you're also creating potentially, and this might be somewhat a controversial thing to say, but addiction loops around sugar and carbs that are happening when their brains are still very young. And um, I know for me, because I grew up at a time when we definitely were not thinking about these things. And in fact, if anything, eating sweets was oftentimes linked to family tradition or to times when we were celebrating, right? So there was a lot of positive emotion there. It creates a loop of sugar addiction, not just emotionally, but physiologically. There's a lot of evidence that sugar is addictive that then is built into your physiology, your whole life. And it's not that you can't undo it. Like I've gone into a lot of effort to change my diet, but I think as parents think about, they're really setting the blueprint for how that child will experience and interact with food and their bodies going forward. 
In terms of athletes, this is a big area of debate for even for adults, right? Like, is there any um, actual validity to carb loading? I think the levels perspective, or I'll say the, the perspective of many of our advisors is that carb loading is not needed. Actually, this goes back to metabolic flexibility where your body does best when it's able to utilize a variety of energy sources to perform. And so if you take it to the extreme, there are actually elite athletes who are keto, which is to say they basically don't eat carbs or they will do their, their sports fasted. So they're just accessing the fat storage in their body to do these. So there's no question that you can perform in the absence of a huge carb load. However, if we're really talking about optimization of performance, I think this comes back to individuality. Some people probably need a little bit more carbs. Even you just think about women, for example, for hormonal balance, it's become clear that women probably need a little bit more carbs than keto provides. So I think there's a lot of, of um, kind of range there. But as for children, I mean, I think my response to trying to prime your child for athletics even if you believe that they need carbs or they seem to do best, they're more, most balanced, most grounded when they have some carbs, just try to focus on really nutritious, high quality carbs, right? Like there is no reason that you need to be, that they need to be eating, for example, pasta rather than something more nutritious, like a little bit of sweet potato with tons of avocado and an egg, right? Like you can, you can provide carbs in a healthy format. Um, I mean, most, almost all that, all vegetables are carbs. Broccoli has some carbs in it, right? All of these have carbs. So you can get a lot of carbs eating a plate of vegetables, but they're healthy carbs, they're high in fiber, and they're really nutrient dense. Yeah, and I that, that's such great advice. And I love that you brought up just the bioindividuality piece and that women do tend to need more carbs than men, um, especially when they're active and they're athletes. Um, so that's just great. And I think it's just instilling those habits and modeling as parents, modeling the behavior, because you see parents that are struggling to change their habits in their forties or fifties. It's like, well, let's model the behavior that we want our kids to develop. So maybe they're not, they don't, they reach a phase in life where they're coming to that aha moment, if you will, that a lot of us have been through a little bit earlier. Exactly. And maybe some of this aspect of what we've accepted as normal, they will start life never thinking that's normal. I mean, how amazing would that be that they, they, from the very beginning, feel what it is to be in balance in their body so that they know immediately, for example, when they go to college, if they're going to college and they start maybe getting a little bit rogue with the food they're eating, they might feel immediately, whoa, I don't like the way this feels in my body. This actually doesn't serve me, right? And it, it helps them to understand the baseline that actually, what does health feel like? And I think that's something that's just been missing for all of us. And we all have an opportunity now to to help our children with that. And the other thing I would say about that is sometimes I think we don't, we don't acknowledge the challenge, the extra challenge for doing this with families when financial resourcing is not there or access to grocery stores, access to farmers markets, right? Like some of these things that many people have easy access to, others do not. And I think there it's, the challenge is very real. Um, and also there's still things that you can do that aren't very expensive to improve what you are feeding your children. For example, starting the day with eggs instead of with Pop-Tarts, probably not a huge price difference, but would have a dramatic impact on their blood sugar um, set point for kind of going forward into their day. So I, I think this is, I guess I just raised that because I think there's things you can do at, at every level of access, but certainly the challenge is greater for some communities than others. And I like that you brought that up. And thank you for providing a tip for people that, you know, maybe can't do the continuous glucose monitor or whatever. So no, I was going to say ultimately optimum health and feeling really good is a birthright for everyone. And what you've provided today just helps to strengthen that point and provide some insight and simple tips for people. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is one reason why I started my, my social channel is because I wanted to have a place where people could find ways that are easy and also not expensive to improve their metabolic health, where of course, it's not that it's bad to eat chia seed pudding. Chia seed pudding is amazing, but what if you don't have access to a grocery store with chia seeds? Or what if that's not something that reasonably is going to be worked into your family meal plan? What are other things you can do? What can you do if you go to your typical grocery store or a discount grocery store? What could you find there that would help to kind of nurture your body or your family's bodies? I think 
that's, that's something that's really important to me to share. So what would be, you know, we do actually love leaving our listeners with a couple of quick, easy, practical tips that they could just implement right away. You mentioned the eggs. What would be another one or two things that somebody could do? Um, I think moving away from super starchy vegetables like um, like potatoes, I think, and, and replacing them with lower carb vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, leafy greens, all of these things that are super nutritious but are less likely to spike your blood sugar. The big number one thing, though, is trying not to eat processed foods. I, I know everyone is time-pressed, and sometimes it's easier or harder than other times, but really processed food almost no matter what it is, is going to wreak havoc on your body and your metabolic health. So even if you just stick to the non-processed food section of the grocery store, it will have a dramatic um, impact on your health. And I would even say, this is backtracking a little on the first tip, but I would much rather you eat a potato than a potato chip, right? So it's moving from the potato chip to the potato. And then if you have that extra mile to go, you move from the potato to the broccoli. So there's, there's steps there, um, but, but definitely every piece helps. And, and the other thing is just moving your body when you can. And it doesn't have to be a formal workout. It can just be picking a kid up and walking around the kitchen with him or her. Or like I said, doing some jumping jacks in the house, walking up and down the stairs, really anything is going to help. Those are fabulous tips and very doable. And I love how you said going from a potato chip to a potato to maybe broccoli or cauliflower. Like those are nice incremental steps. And it's that are it's affordable. A, right. That's the thing. And, it, and it's a process. I've, I, I mean, for me too, right. Moving away from some of these foods towards other foods, it doesn't happen overnight. Maybe it does for some people, which is amazing, but for many people it's incremental, right. And it, maybe you're eating the potato instead of the potato, potato chip for a while. And that's a really important step for you. And then you switch to the next thing and then you just keep adding things in and, and over time kind of finding what works for your body and what fits your budget. Yes, it's all part of your journey. And it's exactly. a journey and it's not a linear path, I think, which is what you kind of mentioned earlier on. Exactly. Um, so Lauren, where can people find you personally? I know you talked about your Instagram page, which has great little short videos and other um, pieces of information as well as levels. Yep. So my, my Instagram is at Dr. Kelly Chu levels has tons of amazing content on all kinds of topics. Um, their Instagram is at levels. And then we also have an amazing blog, which just has tons of articles and information, super evidence-based, super, super data-driven, all kinds of topics. And you can access that, um, at the levels website, levels.com, um, sorry, levelshealth.com slash blog. Um, and, and then we, we work really hard to go on podcasts like this, um, and all kinds of kind of other venues just for raising awareness about metabolic health and sharing the knowledge that we have to help people. Thank you so much, Lauren. And I think this information is so needed out in the world. So I'm glad that you're going on all different podcasts and sharing on your Instagram and on the website and all over the place. So thank you for that. Uh, and as we wrap up this conversation, one question we do like to ask all of our guests is, what does the art of living well mean to you? I think this has changed for me over time and will probably continue to change. I love poetry and I love Mary Oliver. And there's two things that she said that really have stuck with me, especially in this chapter in my life. The first one is about paying attention. And she says that attention without feeling is only a report. And I think this is, I find this so relevant in all aspects of my life where it's really about noticing all the details and paying attention to the things that you care about so that for me, so that I'm as present in my body as possible as I go through the experiences of my life um, and that I'm able to, to feel the emotions of that as they overlap with the different things that are happening for me and that I'm learning and, and growing in. And the second thing that she said that I've been thinking about a lot recently is to keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. And I think working both in health tech, but also just in the other aspects of my life, I love to dance. I dance a lot. I love being with the people I care about. I love walking in nature that so much of this is about imagination, about what is possible. And I think especially during the last few years, when sometimes it felt like there wasn't as much space for that, I really just tried to keep that aspect of 
of imagination alive because um, that to me is is really a lot of the excitement and joy of life. Oh my gosh, that was beautiful. That was really beautiful. Um, Thank you. Just such good insight, both of those. Yeah, yeah I, I think love we can Mary all Oliver. Be, be more present and the unimaginable piece. And like you said, uh-huh. just and now just being a little bit spontaneous and doing what brings you joy. Um, exactly. And being present and that, in those moments. Right. And that you really probably can't even predict what those will be. And for me, mm-hmm. it's the more that I try to control and predict what is next in my life, the less that I, one, feel present and also the less kind of joyful it is. Because to me, at least, life isn't really about control. It's about experience. And that's something that doesn't come easily to me. So I'm really trying to, to practice it. Okay, I, I can think really it doesn't, relate to that. Yeah, it doesn't come <laughs> easily to most humans, I think. I think we're all like wired to control and we're all trying to undo that. <laughs> it's, it's very hard. And, and I think, well, and it's, it's interesting because in many ways, I think that we think that the more control we've had in the past, that it's led to the outcomes that we wanted. So it's kind of this self reinforcing, this self-reinforcing loop. Um, but really the, the more I go along, the more I realize that actually the moments when I was trying to control were not necessarily the most beautiful and joyful moments in my life. It was actually, like you said, when I was just spontaneous and just experiencing. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. This has been fun and enlightening. And we know our listeners are going to um, just walk away with so much good, juicy knowledge and inspiration to improve their metabolic health. So thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Yeah. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so grateful that you joined us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else you think may benefit from this information. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and tag the Art of Living Well podcast on social media. If you want more inspiration in between episodes, you can find us on social media at the Art of Living underscore well on Instagram and Facebook, where we will share snippets from our daily lives and our journey to living well. Mm-hmm.